Howdy, y'all. You're listening to The Managing Up Show, a podcast about leading and managing in the world of technology. I'm your host, Nick Means, and with me this week is my co-host, Brandon Hayes. Hello. So this week, we wanted to talk about something that's uh, we've actually put off talking about for a little while because we have feelings on it. But when it's just Nick and I, we like talking about our feelings. So something that has come up for me recently in a new manager role has been the idea of manager readmes. And I wanted to just open up that idea because it's been a topic that in the engineering manager world has been discussed a lot and actually generates really strong responses in people one way or the other if they have thought about this deeply at all. And so I think there's more to to talk about there and more to mine in that discussion than just I love it or I hate it. And there's some nuance that I don't think has been scratched at enough and so I wanted to talk to you, Nick, about that today, because I know that you you and I have shared and expressed feelings about that privately, but I kind of wanted to pull that out in the open and have a, a more open discussion about the idea of manager readmes. Yeah, so I think the, the place that we should probably start with this is defining what a manager readme is for folks who haven't heard of it before. Uh, it's an idea that comes from Jay Desai, the CEO of health technology startup PatientPing, in an article that he published called The Indispensable Document for the Modern Manager. It was published in First Round Review. We'll link it in the show notes. But essentially, the idea that he brings up is that every person that is responsible for managing other humans should put together a document that explains a little bit about what it's like to work with them, the things that are important to them, the things that they struggle with. It's basically an interaction guide for how to interact with your manager. Okay. So, I mean, that makes sense. The idea that I think I've seen people describe it as like an operating manual for your manager. Yeah. Hey, I come with instructions. So, and I understand the humane origins of this, right? Where it's always a little scary and mystifying to start a job or get a new manager and not know exactly how to work with them. And so I understand, I think what the purpose of a manager readme is intended for. So the backlash to this has actually been pretty strong because it does engender some strong feelings about the negative consequences that this can have. And I think we'll just, rather than dive too deep into all the negative things that can happen, I think I want to lean hard on Camille Fournier's I Hate Manager Readme's blog post, and we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. And she talks about how this kind of struck her wrong in the first place, where it didn't for me. But as soon as obviously when I read this blog post, it's very compelling and explains that this idea of a transactional one-time readme is supposed to be a substitute for an ongoing conversation and trust building exercise with your team. And I totally understand those concerns. And I think I've seen manager readmes that are very bad. I've seen them come from a place of ego, from a place of, hey, you come to me the way that I want you to come to me. I'm trying to explore, like, there are lots of potential problems with this thing. And I want to kind of dive into why, like, you and I both, Nick, have had major concerns about the concept of manager readmes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you already brought up the one that rings the strongest in my mind. And I think that there's a very strong tendency for these things to be a bit self-serving, almost as a shortcut for putting in the hard work to actually get to know somebody and sort of nudging someone towards the way that you manage, not trying to find the style of manage that they respond to best. Yeah, it would be like if you were in a reality show and your reality show read me is I'm not here to make friends. And it's sort of like a blanket non-apology for how you are that says, I'm not here to make friends. So everybody else just has to come to you and meet you where you are. And there's no adaptation occurring. There's no assumption that the other person on the other end is a human being. And I totally understand that point of view. And I kind of resonated with it for a really long time, that this is a thing that is expected to be a substitute for getting better, essentially. I think that was Camille's biggest point about this. And the one that I resonated with the most was essentially it's a quasi non-apology 
for having personality quirks or, or problems or foibles or whatever. And you don't have to work on them because you've now explained them. You've told people how to work around your crappy API. Yeah, she also points out that it's really difficult to know yourself on the level that it would take to actually write an honest manager readme. One of the things that she lands on pretty hard is that if you say you have all these quirks and also all of these good things, but then you do something that contradicts one of the, the parts of your behavior that you're proud of, you've damaged your credibility. And that is a big risk. Yeah, there's definitely inherent risk, yeah. So I think community opinion seems to have settled on the side of readmes are not a good thing and they're probably a little too self-indulgent to be useful. Yeah, and I think it's probably worth exploring that just a little bit more about the, the aspect of this that fundamentally... They are self-indulgent. No matter what your good intentions are, you are sitting down. It's like nobody likes sitting down and writing a bio about themselves, you know, for if you've ever spoken at a conference or had to like get up in a meeting or whatever, they're like, oh, give, tell me a little bit about yourself. Give me three interesting facts about yourself. You know what? Why don't you just drill a hole in my head? Thank you. Like no one likes that. But once you get somebody started talking about themselves, it can be difficult to actually get them to stop. And so there's something self-indulgent in explaining to somebody how to work with you and explaining things about yourself. Well, I was born in the Appalachian Hills and I, you know, like it, it's very easy to and almost impossible to stop yourself from just delving into all of your backstory and all of the things that explain why you are the way that you are and all the things that you care about. And even when you're just saying, I care about people, it can come across as disingenuous because you haven't earned any of that stuff yet. And I think the big challenge that you're going to have is you actually, like you had said, it's a huge risk because if you expose yourself as disingenuous by not living up to what you set those expectations up to, in any way, it damages the whole thing because it comes across as this whole thing was a fake construction to offload responsibility for having some, you know, communication over time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a it's a shortcut to try to gain trust when really the only way to gain trust is meeting after meeting and doing what you said you were going to do over and over again. Yeah. I mean, in, in one of our prior episodes, we talked about the marble jar. Yeah. And it feels like a hack to try to dump a bunch of marbles into the jar really quickly. And you can't hack the marble jar. You can't. So it feels like a cheat and people recognize a cheat when they see it. And so you and I both had a visceral negative, like kind of a lurking, not great feeling about it. And then as soon as Camille like wrote this blog post, it was like, yes, that puts yep. words to what my concerns were. That's what I've been thinking this whole time and haven't slowed down long enough to think about why. Yep. That was very much my reaction. Yep, same here. But something happened recently in, in your life, <laughs> yes. Brandon, that's changed your it opinion did. about these a little bit. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I do. So I work for a company that has, and I have a new boss, and my boss is actually super cool and uh, somebody I like and respect a lot. And they don't listen to the podcast, so I'm not trying to earn any brownie points here. But one of the things they did, they came up to me and said, hey, I'd like to know your sort of unvarnished opinion on manager readme's. And I was like, oh, good. I freaking hate them. <laughs> and they're like, good, good, good. I want you to write one. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And before you do, you know, go watch a little talk that I gave internally here about in defense of manager readmes, acknowledging some of the challenges and explaining why I still think that they are a valuable resource. And I watched their talk on it. And rather than, you know, relitigate and rearticulate every single thing that he said, essentially, the acknowledgement is, yes, done wrong, these are super terrible. And done wrong, they are somebody trying to cram a bunch of marbles into the marble jar. But done right, it's a way to just drop that first one or two marbles into the jar and give somebody a map to how you might drop more over time. 
and give somebody sort of a declaration of your intentions. And essentially, like his whole framing of this was that it was an accountability framework for holding the manager accountable. And I think, you know, that's one of those things, like I said, it's a map to where how to add marbles over time, because it's saying I'm willing to take that risk. I'm willing to take the risk of putting myself out there and saying, here are the things that I will do for you. And if I don't, I want you to tell me that I'm not doing the things that I said I would do. And so it promises less than you might typically see in somebody saying, oh, here's my grandiose view of what managers can and should be. It just says simply, this is what I think my job is. Here's how I live my life and the values that I try to live them by. And if you see me not doing those things, I want you to call me out on it and hold me accountable if you're not getting these things from me. So it's more of a, I almost, I asked him if he would rename the concept because it's got such bad PR. And he's like, no, I'd rather try to reclaim the term, frankly. And so, you know, good luck. I'll see what I can do. But I liked that idea of moving it from being an operator's manual to an accountability framework. That shift from it being just, here's how you work with me to here's my contract. It's essentially, you're writing a contract. And I haven't said this on this podcast, but I've said it on another one where I live by the philosophy that I've learned through very painful experience to avoid unclear contracts. And starting off by a contract that's really clear is kind of nice. It's kind of nice. Also super scary, super challenging. Yeah, you kind of have to know what you're doing before you sign a contract. That's why people have lawyers. But yeah, you have to be your own lawyer. That means you have to have, you know, this, I, I actually, maybe this isn't something that I think somebody that's not super experienced should do without the help of experienced people. And maybe that's the distinction that my new boss didn't articulate is this really shouldn't be done without the supervision of somebody who can like redline this contract and say, yeah. mm, that's not something you want to sign, sign up for. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, sometimes we need somebody to call us on our own BS and that would be the role of the contract redliner for sure. Yeah. So... What are some examples of good contractual clauses and bad contractual clauses that you might or might not want to put into this document? Can we make this a little more tangible? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And making it tangible is a good idea. The way that I make this real for me is realizing that I have been writing a manager read me for the last three years of my life, secretly, in private, in a bunch of notes. And as soon as he reframed it as like a core philosophy personal values and an accountability framework, I was like, oh my gosh, I have been working on this like magnum opus of a blog post about what I think I know at this date and time. I literally have a blog post that I may never publish or may publish someday about what I think I know in year X. And right now it says what I think I know in 2019. And it's about my personal mission, my management philosophy, my values as they relate to my job, activities I think that successful managers do. And these are direct contractual things that I could have people hold me accountable on historically. One of them is to be available. Never appear to be too busy to be interrupted by a team, team member that needs help. Oh man, that's a, that's a high bar though. Never appear to be too busy? That's a high bar. It's a pretty high bar. So maybe, maybe well, there's a reason I haven't published this yet. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I know that I have to explicitly say, I know that I look busy sometimes, but the thing that you need to know is my first responsibility is to you, and I am always interruptible by the people on this team. But to, then you fulfilled the contract. Because if your team believes you, you fulfilled the contract. If they don't believe you, you didn't. <laughs> so if my team believes that their needs can trump whatever you know thing I might be working on at the time, and let's say with an SLA of a couple hours, but not days 
or weeks right. yeah. of not being able to interrupt your boss because they're too busy. And I think we've all had that experience of working for a boss that's too busy to interrupt for days or even weeks, sometimes months. So understanding the availability is one of the core tenets of my management philosophy. I'm willing to be held accountable to that. And somebody could come to me and say, I've been trying to bug you about this, but I haven't felt like I could for a long time. And I can go, okay, I'm not meeting that. Buddy, you didn't meet your SLA. Where's my cash back? Yeah, exactly. Creating space for people to do their best work. That's another thing that I believe a manager should do and doesn't always do. And I don't always do, but that's a standard I'm willing to be held to. And some of these things may be too aspirational to put in a manager read me as sort of like my accountability framework. Like, I don't want to be told I'm not doing my job because, you know, we had a little bit of a crunch mode and we had to ship some stuff and come back to stuff later. Like, there's a balance there that I trust the team to be able to hit. Uh, that's another one is how do I signify to the team that I trust them and that I'm not micromanaging them? Maybe they feel micromanaged. I probably wouldn't commit to 30 of these things, yeah, totally. but I might commit to like six or seven yeah. and say, here are the things that you can expect from me. And any less than this, I'm not doing my job much more than this. And I probably can't do that job. I like that. I like the idea of reframing it as an accountability framework, exactly what you said. I'm curious if that's all that goes in here or if there's other parts of the traditional manager read me stuff that still goes in here about communication style and weaknesses and things like that. I would say as an appendix almost, hmm. the suggestion that my boss actually put in there was good, which is outsource that to a different framework. So he does the Enneagram or you might do disc assessment, or maybe do all of them and yeah. be like, pick your flavor of you know Myers-Briggs, whatever. I believe most of those things are pseudoscientific at best. However, they all show off the idea that and maybe we should do an episode about this at some point if there's enough meat on those bones but yeah. but th the main thing is they all show you that there are different types of people that can work together and that communicate differently and it is a fact that people on a team will communicate differently and being tolerant of those different communication styles and approaching those differently will yield better results just the empathy that's required to pause and remember oh yeah this person really cares about data or this person really cares about feelings, or this person really cares about results. There are people that fall into these general broad categories. And so being able to link out and say, hey, I took the, these couple of assessments. I came up as a number two on the Enneagram. I came up as yellow green on, uh, or green yellow on the, the disc assessment. And here's what that means. And here's, you know, I don't have to tell you a ton of stuff about me. I can just say, if you're curious about my communication style, here are my defaults. If those don't work for you, let's talk about it. But I don't think you should have to put too much labor into explaining all of your quirks and foibles and, you know, awkwardness. Like hopefully enough people in management consultancies have built frameworks for assessing that and selling those results back to you. Yeah. And there's one thing I'll call out about that that I think would actually be super helpful. And it's that you're outsourcing that to a source of truth outside yourself. So your optimistic picture of how you operate is going to be normalized into whatever framework that these management companies have put together around these assessments. So yep. it doesn't rely on your rosy glasses that you look at yourself through. There's, there's some truth there that you might not get at if you just sat down and thought through, what do I need to share with the people that report to me? Gosh, that's a really good point. I would go out on a limb and say, you should not make those things up yourself. There is too much stuff that you will hear that you don't want to hear about yourself that you wouldn't be able to admit if it wasn't somebody else coming to you with that data. Yeah. Camille says that this is the Dunning-Kruger of self-awareness, that you just literally don't have enough self-awareness to spot your own blind spots. It's absolutely true. 
Yeah, and, and it's sort of like Zeno's paradox that as you approach it, you just get closer and closer, but there's always like the half remaining. There's always the gap that will still be there Yeah, uh, that you'll never quite close of your ability to see yourself. Yeah, I do want to call out one thing real quick if you don't know anything about these assessments. If you do the DISC, the DISC is a great assessment, but know that it's situational so that if that's the thing that you choose to put in your manager readme, just be aware that you're going to need to take it anytime you change roles or companies because it's going to change over time. Hmm. I didn't actually know that. That's one of the ones that is very situational. Hmm. And I cannot remember the name of the one that you and I took, Nick, a few months back. Oh, what was that one? That one was great. Yeah, there's one. If we find it, we'll link to it in the show notes. It was really great because it kind of pegged, like it pegs you in your different category and it actually gives you specific challenges that people have in working with you that are hard to hear. And you go, yeah, but that's probably true. Yeah, it was it was disturbingly correct for me. <laughs> yeah, you were the quiet genius. Yeah, I think that's what it came up as. Which just means that I sit on my thoughts until I have them polished, and then I will finally get around to sharing them. That's what that means. Yep. So yeah, if we find that, we'll link to it. It's like $40, and honestly, like I think, and it takes like 10 or 15 minutes to go through, and I thought it was a really fantastic use of $40 and that time to be able to learn that people have different defaults in terms of their communication style that we're set to. Like you said, if you want to take a disk assessment and that stuff is useful across your entire team, but it also shows that you're willing to lead by example and show your vulnerability by saying, here are things that I actually don't like to admit about myself, which is very different than saying, here's my personality quirks and foibles for you to work around. It's like, here are the things that I actually know I need to work on. And maybe that's a little bit more of an accountability framework too. Yeah. Like if you, if you have an experience that's negative in this category, talk to me about it. Yeah, for sure. It's the true tilt profile. I just found it. Mm. The tilt 365. Yeah. The, the tilt profiles. I, yeah. I really enjoyed the experience of going through that with coworkers as well. So we should, we should outsource the section of the manager readme that is about working styles and how our personality affects the way that we approach work. I really like that as a heuristic. What other bits of advice are there that we could offer for folks that are wanting to give this a second look to maybe maybe make this a more useful and less self-indulgent document? For a second, I'm actually going to lean into self-indulgence mm. because I'm a big believer in having a purpose that you don't outsource to your work. And I think that's part of what it means to bring your whole self to work is to have a purpose that isn't, you know, I think people would be disingenuous if they came in and said, my purpose in existence is to make this company the best company we can make it. And that sounds noble, but it's also, it rings hollow, right? It rings false. Yeah. That doesn't sound real. People have their own purpose. And it might be, my purpose is to, you know, make the best life I can for my family and to have a work that supports me in that. Or it might be something else. And so leaning into the self-indulgence side a little bit for me is the ability to reflect and think about what your purpose is when you walk out the door or, you know, you take your headphones off and you walk away from your desk at home, as may be the case, and you continue to exist and live your life. And then you come to work, like the same person exists between those two places. You're not a different person with a different purpose in existence. And it's something I think a lot of people maybe earlier in their careers will outsource to the company they work at. Yeah. Like, no, my mission is to make this startup succeed and I'll, I'll, you know, lubricate the the machinery with my blood if I have to, to keep this thing running. Like, I think we've all gone through that phase, but at a certain point you realize that's, that doesn't work and it doesn't, it's not really how the universe works. So reflecting on your own purpose and how that ties to your work, it sounds like luxurious and self-indulgent, but I actually think it's really important for connecting to people and saying, here's why I'm here. So I can tell you, my managers read me says that his purpose is to help the people he works with do the best work of their career, which is like, well, crap. First off, you stole my thing. 
you stole my whole thing. But mine is, you know, subtly different from that. And I get to, I get to explain what my purpose is and why I'm here. And that will ring true because it is true. It's who I am. It's why I'm here. It's why I, you know, come, come and do the things that I do. And they, they can see authentically how the things that I'm doing in this readme jibe with that purpose. And so when they hold me accountable, it's not saying, hey, you're not doing for me the thing that you said you were going to do. Like that's, that's cool level one stuff. But like, you know, the next level is, hey, you're not doing this thing. And you said your whole point was to do this thing. And that's not helping me do that thing. You know, if, if I get to say, hey, you're not helping me do the best work of my career, you're not even fulfilling your own purpose. You're like, oh, crap. I really need to reflect on that. That's powerful. And so being that introspective and that vulnerable about like why you are doing the thing that you're doing can be really useful in documenting. But yes, it's wildly self-indulgent. It is, but at the same time, how many folks are there out there in management roles that haven't taken the time to even think about why they're in a management role? That have, have sort of just taken it because it's a promotion and haven't really done the work to figure out what it means to actually be in that role, what the responsibility of being in that role is beyond just delivery. Actually, I, I really like it encouraging that thought exercise specifically. So before the podcast, we were actually talking about the idea of good ambition that you were kind of describing to me something that like there's sort of a pull that happens with good ambition rather than you trying to push something to make something happen. And like you said, our society really incentivizes saying you're supposed to move up. You're supposed to get the next promotion. You're supposed to get to the next level. You're supposed to move into management. You're supposed to be a director whatever. But there's a good form of ambition that is more of a pull strategy that is like this organization needs me needs what I can offer in this area. Yeah, and I think I think it gets into what exactly what we're talking about here. You have to have that sense of mission and purpose in order for you to even have access to that form of ambition, for it to be anything other than ladder climbing. If you're going to have ambition and have ambition on purpose, it needs to be because you want to make something better. You need more access to do that. You need more positional authority to do that. You need some bit that you don't have in order to influence some aspect of the organization that you can't influence from where you're currently sitting. And the only way that that ever truly happens is if you've had the time to think about what your mission is in life, what your ambition is, why you're, why you're in a manager role in the first place. And it may be that you don't know that. Yeah. And that's fine. But you should also know that in that way, your manager readme will be deficient. And maybe it's incumbent on your manager to help you dig for some of that. Yeah. And if you don't know that, it's a good sign that maybe you're new to your role. Maybe you're still learning what management is, and that's okay too. Nobody knows what management is when they first step in the role. It takes a long time to sort of get your head wrapped around this concept and the amount of difference it can make in the, the people's lives that report to you. It's, it's a lot more weight than you think you're taking on when you first step into the role. Another thing that comes with that time is a shift from values as aspirational ideas to values as trade-offs. There's, that's a mark of a certain you know, maturation that occurs. Like if you were to draw a maturity model of management or anything that you do, right? Like in programming, you know, static typing is the only way. And then you meet people with more experience and they go, well, there's, there are trade-offs here. If you're looking to do this, you might use dynamic languages. If you're looking to do this, you might want to do static types. And if, there are trade-offs everywhere. And I would say the mark of well-delineated values in your manager readme would be the presence of trade-offs would be the presence of different philosophies. Like I understand that there are philosophies that there are people that think about the system first and then move inward. But I also recognize that my default 
is to think about individuals first and then move outward toward the system about, about how they connect with each other. That's how just how I experience the universe. And it's, so that's going to be my bias. And it might be useful to explain my own biases when I'm talking to other people. And it may or may not be useful in a readme, but it's certainly useful to know that and hold myself to working against those biases when they don't serve me and making people aware of the fact that those exist. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a great point. I mean, one of mine is I tend to operate from a place of very high trust. And sometimes that means that I'm not as deep into the details as I need to be. And so one of the things that I'm working to do a better job at is giving my team the invitation to invite me into the details when they need me. Help me see the spots where they need my opinion and my input. Yeah, it's not that you don't care. No, it's not that I don't care at all. It's that I don't want to be there by default. Yep. There are higher leverage places for me to spend my time. So that that invitation, I think, is where a readme can be a lever, I think. My current working theory. I will have to let you know because I get to I get to experiment on this a little bit. I'm being invited to experiment with this yeah. in my current role, and I'm excited to see how it plays out. I'm certain to learn something yeah. in the process of having my views challenged. I didn't expect to have this particular view challenged, but I'm always, you know, I'm always grateful to learn new stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the same boat. That was one of the reasons this was an appealing topic to me is that it's something that I had so completely and thoroughly written off, and frankly, so would you. And then suddenly, there's this change of opinion all of a sudden. And it's it's a very productive reframing in what the purpose of this document is. Actually, at this point, now the what the difficulty is going to be constraining the you know four thousand words I have written down about my management philosophy, and condense it into something that is actually going to be useful to somebody. So that's a very different challenge than I had anticipated I was going to have with this. Speaking of going back deep on the self indulgent aspect of it, but just explaining like here are the rules of the road in general. Engineering teams got to ship software. And I think it can be easy to lose sight of that when you're in a company culture that talks a lot about engineering driven this and engineering driven that. We really value engineers. Like, oh, cool. Who's using the things that your engineers are building? Like, oh, well, most of our stuff is in private beta. Like, "Mm, okay, that sounds like a problem. So like my philosophy is that, you know, software only matters if it's being used by somebody. So that tends to jibe with a lot of organizations, but it also involves trade-offs. Yeah. Because that... That restricts your freedom. Users are tough. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to build and, and update software that don't have that doesn't have users. So, yep. And I don't I don't mean to be glib about that. It's just there are trade offs associated with that. But I think you're right. I think that is a, a tremendous marker of maturity. I mean, it's sort of the the same thing we say about engineers and how they relate to technical debt. They don't just blindly take it on. They understand the trade offs that they're making when they take it on, and there's a plan to pay it back. That's one of that's one of the the clear signs I always look for for maturity in engineers is that mm. they understand those trade-offs. And I'd never thought about the fact that the same thing is a maturity marker in an engineering manager. Yeah, certainly in your values. Like explain to me how your val- what your values trade away and then I'll believe you that you've really thought about that value. Yeah. And I think the the last thing is kind of helping set expectations of people. I don't think you can kind of skate without you know, here, here's all the stuff you can expect from me. I'm going to tell you what I'm going, going to expect from you. If I'm going to be the kind of person that helps people do the best work of their career, you're going to do the best work of your career. That's not my manager read me. That's somebody else's, but like, I get it. That's cool. Like I, I dig it. Like I can, I can appreciate that. And the way that I would frame this is that as a set of experiments for people to conduct with me and see if I'm, see if I'm telling the truth about this stuff. Uh, one of them is I expect people to tell me the truth and not hide truth from me even if it's uncomfortable. 
And that's an expectation, but it also is like kind of a contractual commitment on my part to welcome that. And if people experiment with, like you had said earlier, this is super dangerous because if you invite somebody to experiment and they have like one failure or two failures of that experiment, you're done. Your credibility on that line is done. And so saying, hey, I really expect people to tell me the truth. And then somebody tells me something hard and I dismiss it. I'm dismissive. And I say, oh, no, it's not really that bad. Or, you know, my tendency is to be overly optimistic sometimes. And so that has curtailed people's desire to bring truth to me because I go, oh, I don't feel heard. I'm not listened to. I'm dismissed when I try to bring something up. And so a lot of times I would think, oh, I'm optimistic. And that's a good thing. Just whole cloth. Like, nope. Sometimes that actually completely eradicates trust. And so inviting people, hey, I expect you to come tell me the truth, come experiment with that and see what result you get. So I would say framing these and understand when you make those commitments, you're basically inviting people to experiment on you and see and prove you. And so you better be ready. And that's why you don't want 30 line items in there. You don't want to have 30 tests that can fail in every single conversation. Yeah, just the ones that matter. I mean, that's a good point because there's no way to build relationship without risk. And in some ways, this does accelerate that process just a little bit by letting people know what experiments you're inviting them to conduct, what ways you're inviting them to come and see if you're a person of your word, if you're a person of integrity. It's a trust honeypot. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. So, yeah, you better you better be able to back that one up. I think that's probably, for now, uh, as good a place to wrap it up as any. I know this was a little bit of a shorter conversation, but I really I really think like that's as much as I feel like I'm qualified to talk about on this. And then it might be good at some point to come back with Travis in the future after we I've had a chance to put this in practice and talk about the results I had from it and talk about the good and the bad as practiced in real life. Yeah, tonight's been an interesting experiment in capturing both of our thinking as our thoughts on this particular subject are changing pretty dramatically in a pretty short window of time. So it's been a little bit of a raw exploration, but we hope you've enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your feedback on it. Yes, absolutely. If you have feedback on this or you've used these or somebody else has used them, and I definitely understand. I've seen bad ones. And it might be fun to kind of anonymously talk about bad ones that we've seen in the future when we come back to this at some point. But even if you just have any thoughts whatsoever or other topics you'd like us to cover, hit us up at Managing Up Show on Twitter. Individually, I'm Tev Viking on Twitter. I'm Means on Twitter. And as always, we really appreciate it when you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify and share with your friends that you learned some cool stuff or you tried something new and then tell us about it. For everybody at Managing Up Show, thank you so much and we can't wait to talk to you again next time. Thanks, y'all.